Uh, let's look first at the building, okay, the, the blueprints of the building. Here's our, here's our key passage, Ephesians 4. We talk about this a lot with equipping the saints, theological equipping. We're going to keep reading a little bit past that to show you what are we going to be unpacking today. So Ephesians 4, it's there in your notes. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, from, who, uh, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, each part is working, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so here is uh, Paul and the Spirit speaking through him, quite literally giving us the blueprints of the church. Okay, so he's given the church as a whole, apostles, we see that our, our New Testament is laid down on the foundation of the apostles, Paul, Peter, John, uh, and then more than that, given shepherds, teachers, pastors, uh, if you will, to equip the saints, the members of the church, you guys, to minister to one another. And in your ministering to one another, what results from that is the whole church being built up in love. You see that picture. The whole church is being built up by how you love one another, quite literally, the people that you're sitting next to. So I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, notice how this radically, radically confronts just the normal view of church in the Bible Belt, where we live, where church is primarily you come and sit next to people who are primarily looking at this guy to do all the ministry stuff. You come as an audience member, the person next to you, you might say hi if we do one of those classic baptistry things and say hi to one another before we get started, uh, which we don't because that's, you know, no one likes that, let's be honest. Uh, but you, you're not going to look at each other. At best, you're warm bodies who both like me. You're here because you like the product that this church is giving you, but you're not going to relate to one another regardless. That is, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit uncharitable, but that is the primary way. I mean, I grew up here. That's the primary way we view the church. We're here for the product that we get, and if we don't get the product from the stage, we'll just go somewhere else that has a better product, even if it's of the best of intentions, even if that product is really good expository preaching or something like that. But notice, zero percent factored into that sort of view is you and the other members of the church and how you relate to one another, whereas the Bible would major on that. My job is to equip you to love one another. That's what's actually going to build this church up. What's going to build this church up primarily is not awesome preaching and awesome professional ministers. That's not what Ephesians 4 says. The professional ministers are meant to equip you to do the building up of the church. Do you see how those are almost opposite pictures of the church? That's why I'm starting here. We can't start and talk about how to actually do it until we have the, blue, the, the correct blueprints. Okay, The building's going to be a mess if we have wrong blueprints. Okay, so notice how opposite that is to the typical way we view the church. We typically, again, show up to the church and say, is this the type of community that I want? As if we're looking for community. Whereas the Bible would say, are there breathing Christians there? Okay, well then love them, and then as a result of your love, God will create the community. It's a backwards way of thinking to say, is this community the right one for me? The, the Bible never talks that way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gives a quote that I, I quote to you often. The person who loves their dream of community, let me see if this place has kind of got what I'm looking for. The person who loves their dream of community will actually destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. He's very Ephesians 4 in that quote. Look at the person next to you, love them, care for them, edify them, build them up, bear their burdens, and that's actually going to create something by God's grace that's going to look supernatural to the world, okay? You see those radical different views of the church that Ephesians 4 gives versus what's kind of typical in our day. One way of, of summarizing it would be uh, you need to have a uh, John F. Kennedy view. <laughs> ask not what your church can do for you, rather ask what you can do for your church, right? Uh, Kennedy, not a lot of people know this. He actually got his PhD on Ephesians 4. Uh, that's where that quote came from. 
Just a joke? Goodness. Okay. Uh, second thing, notice. So notice the radically different views. Second thing to notice, notice how active the saints of the church, the members of the church are meant to be. There's another thing that radically confronts how we typically view our role in the church. Ephesians 4 says you are unbelievably active in building up the church. You are not a passive recipient of ministry. You are not kind of passively, you know, you become a Christian, go to a good church, and then you just kind of wait to die and go to heaven. Again, the Bible's never going to give you that picture. Being a Christian and joining a church as a member of that church that covenants in a local body means you are incredibly active in pouring out your life for the building up of the church, for the building up of those around you, of ministering the gospel to every situation so that those around you might be built up and pointed to the Lord. And then lastly, the last thing to notice in looking at the blueprints, which is just something I want us to stand in awe of a little bit, Jesus Christ who goes to the cross and is raised from the dead, defeating the enemy of enemies and breaking the chains of sin that have eternally held us bound, has now chosen to use us, use you, as the tool to build up his church, which should be a really, really sobering thing to us. The way the church grows up into knowledge of Jesus, unity of faith, maturity in right thinking and theology is by Christ empowering you, the Spirit empowering you to love one another. That is crazy. That's an incredible honor if you grasp what that is. You're not just like, okay, there's all these random commands. I guess I should do it so that I'll be a good Christian. You have the honor of fighting the enemy of fighting sin in one another's life. You have the glory of helping one another look more like Jesus. There are eternally significant things happening in other people's lives as a result of you ministering the gospel to them. That's how Christ has set up the building up of his church. So we have the honor to be used as a tool by his power. Paul will say, I planted Apollos waters. God gave the increase but he pours himself out by the power that God is working in him. So I want us to see all these things. That's the blueprints. We need to see that rightly before we move on. So there's the the building blueprints. Next, let's look at the bricks. So that's the building. Ephesians 4 is giving us kind of a, okay, we build one another up in love. The next question will be, what do we use to build this church? What do we use to build up the local church? So if you're building an actual house, There's the bricks, there's the mortar, there's the plumbing, there's the wiring, there's the art that you're going to hang on the inside. There's millions of different things you could use to build up the church. And in the same uh, way, the New Testament is going to give us tons and tons and tons and tons of things that fall into uh, this idea of how do we build up the church. So without looking ahead, there's going to be a lot of without looking ahead uh, in this teaching. Take 30 seconds, talk to the person next to you, you know, the person you're supposed to be building up. Uh, And just what are some ways that the New Testament has us building up the church? So take 30 seconds. I'll look at the clock. What are some ways the New Testament would tell us to build up the church? Okay, fast 30 seconds. Okay, what do you got? Pray for one another. Forgiving one another. Jared, is that what you said? Caring, oh. I was like, I just said it's not about me. Uh, Caring, yeah, caring for one another. Yeah, helping meet the physical needs of the church. Yeah, Acts 6. Anything else? Using individual gifts? Yeah. Meeting together regularly? Meeting together regularly? Yes? Say it again. Loving. Loving one another? Yeah, that's great. Okay, yeah, that's great. So you hear a lot of uh, themes here. I've, I've broken this down into to big buckets. All those are great answers. So the first thing we see, these, these different bricks, all of the one another passages 
of which there are many, love one another, caring for one another, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, meeting one another's physical needs, those sorts of things. Those are, those are some bricks that we lay. You see those all over the New Testament. Uh, another thing that was said is uh, the bricks of your specific gifts. Uh, the scriptures would say God has uniquely wired you, the Spirit has given you gifts, not just, you know, because you're a Marvel character and that's just your specific superpower, but so that that gift might be used to build up the church, right? Let everything be done for the building up of the church. That's what's happening in, in, in uh, Corinth, in 1 Corinthians. Everyone's got these gifts and they're just using them unhelpfully. They're, very, they're not using them rightly. And so Paul's writing 1 Corinthians to say, you guys have gifts, you know that, but the way you're using them uh, is actually for the building up of yourself. Let everything done be for, the, be for the building up of the church. So those are two main ones. And I have another one there in your notes uh, that's just, you know, uh, a generic Jesus juke, uh, the gospel. Uh, the, 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 you could say this kind of infuses everything. The, the way you preach the gospel to yourself, the way you preach the gospel to your neighbor, your Christian neighbor, uh, because our eyes often drift down away from our Lord in a way that lifts their eyes up to see how does the gospel come in and meet that specific situation. So those are all the specific bricks. There's, there's more, but this is, I'm trying to summarize in big bucket. So we have the blueprints and then, okay, how do we, what do we need to use to build this? Here are the bricks that we're going to use. Uh, and then lastly, where we'll spend most of our time, let's talk about, okay, so we've got the bricks, love one another. How do we lay that brick or care for one another? How do we lay that brick? So again, uh, in, rather than going through just a whole bunch of verses. I have a whole bunch of verses in your uh, handout. I won't cover all those. But I thought rather than just literally going through hundreds of verses of how we build the church, I tried to organize this, this part uh, in a way that kind of plugs into your life. So rather than, again, just walking through commands, I, I wanted to organize this in a way that uh, you can easily take it and knowing your calendar, your daily schedules, your you know, gifts and things like that, you can plug these things in. So I'll give you generic applications. I'll speak generally. Uh, and so you guys just be critically thinking as I'm doing this of, okay, when Jared said I could do this, okay, actually I could do this over here. Just, you know how to apply it more specifically to your life than I do. So this last part, here's how I've kind of organized this, this how do we lay the bricks uh, process, our building posture our view of others as we build, our, our posture as we build, building with our words, building with our gifts and resources, building with our life. I know that's generic. I'll, I'll show you uh, what I mean by that. And then the goal of building. Okay, so see, see what I mean? I'm trying to organize it around like how we live. So our posture, how we use our words, how we use our gifts, and how we just quite simply use our life with our eyes set on the goal of building. So let's, let's, look at, let's just walk through these. Building posture first. Uh, again, in the same way we covered blueprints before talking about anything else, uh, we have to talk about uh, our, our posture, our heart disposition uh, before we talk about specifically what we're supposed to do because everything else is going to flow from how you view one another. Everything is going to flow from this posture. The Bible never gives you random, pointless commands. It is always meant to flow from a transformed heart. So obedience to God is always meant to flow from love for God. Or to say it another way, how we treat one another in the church at Parkway is going to flow from how we view one another. And how we view one another, this is the main point, our eyes towards one another is meant to be radically transformed by the gospel that we've received. If we are Christians, if we are believers, if the gospel truly has flooded into our heart, the Bible says the gospel then transforms everything about you, how you relate to the world. Instead of hate, you now love your enemy, you pray for those who persecute you, and especially how you relate to one another. Okay, so everything we're going to talk about flows from this posture, which is why I put it first. So I have a couple things here. Again, all this is meant to be kind of a a summary of me collecting biblical data, but by no means exhaustive. So our first posture that we see uh, as probably the most repeated, most important is love, a posture of love for one another. Again, John 13, Jesus takes a towel and a bowl of water and washes his disciples' feet, 
something that astounds them, something that they almost don't want him to do. Peter almost stops him or tries to stop him from doing because it's such an incredible act of humility. And then Jesus says after this, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So you see there, again, as a result of the gospel, as a result of Jesus' treatment of you, you now treat others that way. As I have loved you, washed your feet, now you treat, you love one another, wash one another's feet. You see that flow, because we're going to see that with every single one of these. So posture number one is love one another, and fleshing that a little bit, a little bit more is a posture of humility, Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So thus far, Paul's told us, consider others better than yourselves, serve others, don't look to your own interests, look to the interests of others. And now here is the why. Here's the why. This mind which you have in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why should you count others better than yourself? Because you have a God who counted you better than himself. Why should you count others more significant and look to their interests? Because you have a God who is the king of the universe and look to your interests rather than his own interests and stepped off his heavenly throne and became a man and just become a man, a dirt creature, but went to the cross and died the most shameful death imaginable. That's why. You see that gospel reality floods in your heart, what Jesus has done for you, therefore you treat others that way. You treat others as more significant. Why? Because Christ counted you more significant. You see how it's not just a random command. Treat others better. If that's all you take, some random to do the Bible has given you, you might obey, but you certainly won't delight in that obedience. Caring for others and laying your life down for others won't be a life-giving thing. You won't see the glory that it's actually doing. But when you see it in the grand scheme of the wondrous salvation your God has planned as the result of his son coming down, being born in a feeding trough and then dying a slave's death, being raised in victory and then telling you, build up the church, follow me, follow my example, wash one another's feet, lay down your lives for one another. Then all of a sudden, caring for one another, putting others' interests has eternal significance. All of a sudden, it might be the most precious thing to you rather than just, a, okay, what am I supposed to do? Okay, okay, sorry, I just need to be a good Christian and obey God. Right? You see how miserable that is? And do you also see how unbiblical that is? Your God of joy doesn't give random cold commands for you to begrudgingly follow. He rolls you into life with a capital L. So as a result of his humility, we have this posture of humility. Next, forgive and forbear. This was mentioned in how we build up one another. Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as Christ has forgiven you. Okay? So again, no random commands. As a result of you owing an infinite debt you could not pay, as a result of you deserving eternity in hell, and that would have been perfect justice, yet the God of the universe forgiving your debt by sending his own son to die in your place, because that has been the wondrous reality hanging over your head, you don't dare hold forgiveness from anybody else. Because you have this unthinkable forgiveness given to you, therefore your posture towards others who have wronged you 
so much less than you have infinitely wronged God, you forgive. You forgive. As a result of his forgiveness of you, our posture towards one another is forgiveness. And then with that is forbearance. This is the idea. It's one of those words that just sounds Christian-y. We don't really know now what it means. It just means long-suffering with one another. So Ephesians 4, again, uh, complete, uh, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, or forbearing with one another in love. Paul talks about in Romans 4, uh, God forbeared with us. He, he passed over former sins, right? Why didn't God just strike you down the first sin you committed? He could have. That would have been justice. But he waits. He, he forbears with you and then sends his son to cover you with grace. So likewise, we, as we relate to one another, uh, I mean, I hate to burst your bubble if you're new to the church, you're going to find a lot of people super annoying, uh, like real annoying. Like the church isn't this awesome place because just a whole bunch of awesome personalities happen to find each other. You understand that, right? What binds us together is not that we just all click, we all like the same stuff, and we all are just equally socially awesome. It's super important. You're going to really hate the church if you don't really grasp that. But as you, by the way, a lot of people think you're annoying too. Uh, and so as you <laughs> interact with people who are immature, you're going to be more mature than others. Others are going to be more mature than you. As you interact with people who are less mature, uh, as you interact with people who are not mature and super passionate, which is a terrible combination because they tend to spew their immaturity everywhere they go, uh, you forbear. You don't say, whoa, that person's not perfect. You guys see this person's not perfect? Okay, they're out of my circle, right? You forbear with one another when someone sins against you. That's why I put forgiveness and forbear uh, together. You, you don't just forgive them, but you say, hey, I'm sticking with you. I'm not severing this just because you hurt me. I've hurt my God more times than can be counted, yet he has never rejected me. He's forbeared with me. And so we do that with one another. A key to this, uh, just again in our, our kind of soft culture, is just be a good example of someone who it's really hard to offend. Have good, thick gospel skin. Don't, don't be easily offended. Don't be easily angered, to use a biblical word. Uh, so stick with one another. It's another way of saying that. Now, I'm, I'm not meaning let sin lie. Forbearing is not an excuse for not confronting sin. Okay, so don't misunderstand that. But overlook sin if you can. Forgive where there's uh, opportunity to and, and just navigate that well. When you see someone walking in sin unrepentantly in a way that needs a rebuke, which is what we're going to talk about uh, later on, enter into that in the same way. But you see, you see the difference between those two? Forgive and forbear, that's another uh, posture. And then lastly, I'll just say, not as another posture, but just as a practical application, all these things are really hard. Uh, no one's just like, sweet, got a teaching on I should love, got it, right? Uh, you have a heart that's going to be prone to hatred. Uh, you're, you have a heart that's wrestling with sin, that's warring against uh, sin and the old self that has been put to death but rears its ugly head every now and then. So here's my encouragement to you. It's really simple. Pray for God to change your heart and make it a habit to be meditating often on the gospel. Make it a daily habit to meditate on the gospel of the reality that you, not the person next to you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. By nature, a child of wrath following the prince of the power of the air, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved you, sent his son completely by grace, not a result of your works, to bring you into his family. Let that rich gospel be flowing through your minds daily and you'll just see if that, if that begins to soften some of the hardness in your heart. And then just ask God, just pray. Uh, my wife and I spent several years in a missions organization that had people from all over the world, so a lot of different cultures clashing, so not just different personalities, different cultural values. Uh, and so this would happen every year. It was a nine-month school, and every year, the first month was just a war zone. All the, all the passive Swiss and all the, you know, gung-ho, we won both World Wars, Americans, just don't click, you know? Where were you guys paying off the Nazis? That's where you guys were. I'm kidding, not really, if you're Swiss, but read some history. Um, right, so you don't like each other. 
Speaking, this is what I mean by immaturity, spewing. Uh, so you don't like each other. And so we would quite literally, just because you're young, we're like, I guess we just pray that we like each other. Uh, and it was just incredible to see God genuinely begin to answer your prayer. God, I want to like this guy who I don't currently like. <laughs> and I didn't have the verbiage for like, because your word says all this. And I was like, I think it's a Christian thing. And you would just see these people become best friends, right? People I still talk to a decade later. Okay, so just... Don't give up because it's hard. God has given you an avenue for your heart to continually change, and it's his spirit that dwells within you that's doing that sanctifying work. So just ask him. Just ask the Lord, Lord, I want to be this Philippians 2 type person. I want to be so saturated with what you did in sending your son and what he did for me that I would, I would gladly lay down my life for others. And I forgive quickly and I forbear. And uh, when there's pain, I take that to you and I forget. You see that? Just ask the Lord to do that. That is quite literally his job, right? What he promises he's going to do. So starting with posture, that's the posture by which we build. We lay the bricks with that view. We lay the bricks with that Heart, And if you don't have that, again, I'm not saying until you're, you know, filled with this overwhelming love for one another, don't even worry about building others up. Still obey. Right? Begrudging obedience is better than disobedience. But pray for this. Fight for this. Meditate on the gospel until God gives you this posture. Okay, so that's the first thing. Building posture. Next, building with your words. Okay, so without looking ahead, again, 30 seconds. What are some of the ways the Bible says you use your words to build up the church? 30 seconds. Okay, what are some ways? What are some ways the Bible says we use our words for building up the church? Sorry, say again? Edify one another, yeah? Speak the truth, yeah? Any others? Encourage one another, yeah, it's a big one. Say it again, Brett. Rebuke harshly. <laughs> Brad's joking. Uh, <laughs> rebuke gently. Yeah. Yes. Help one another. Yeah. Which would be a way when you're encouraging others, you're helping them, things like that. Anything else? Prayer. Prayer. Okay. Again, I don't know if you guys are cheating because I, I have them all there. But uh, I imagine you look no further than my words exit my mouth on the notes. Okay, so I have a couple of those there. Yes, again, all those things. Are, the, the Bible gives so many ways in which we use our speech. Your God is a speaking God. God created by saying, let there be light, and then there was light. God saved us by his word coming down, dwelling among us, right? Jesus speaks the truth. We're meant to go out and make disciples by speaking the gospel, right? Faith comes by hearing our words. And so it makes sense that the way we build up the church is primarily through our speech. So I have one prayer. Uh, this might seem like an obvious one, but it's, it's, it's one of the ones that you can do all the time. You don't have to be physically with one another to build one another up. You can take one another before the throne of grace. You can say, Father, I want to lift up uh, DJ. And without DJ knowing it sometimes, or without me physically being with DJ, I can go into the throne room of the living God uh, and lift up my brother and Courtney and their family before God and pray for them, intercede for them, so that God might do the things he's promised to do in DJ's life. That's a way to build up the church, build up DJ. So uh, I have a couple things here. I put this... this might be the most significant brick, right? Because Paul planted, Paul's watered, God gave the increase. If God is absent from any of this stuff, uh, we're just playing games. We're not building anything that's going to last, okay? It will be quickly washed away if the Spirit is not actually doing the building here. And so prayer, I put as a, its own thing, but it's meant to saturate everything. 
okay? Because prayer is how we show that we are dependent on God to actually do all this stuff. Encouragement without the Spirit's intervention through my words is a motivational speech that will fade quickly, or at worst, flattery. Okay, so I put it there as, as it's its own thing, but it's meant to infuse everything. So you can build up the church by praying for the whole church. So our mission statement, the delight, display, declare, could just be a nice, cool mission statement that we have, or it could be something that we actually beg God to create here. We could beg God in prayer to say, Father, we want it to be a reality that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that we can say through experiential conviction Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there's pleasure forevermore. I don't say that because I'm repeating scripture. I know that because I know you. Do we ask God, make that a reality here? That we would display that these teachings wouldn't just be tech teachings. Like, cool, did that check. We'll do salvation next or something like that. But this would be something that actually God creates a reality here that the church actually builds, Parkway Church actually builds up one another in the way the scriptures would say, that we declare Jesus, that we carry out the mission that we're meant to carry out. So you could pray for the church. That certainly builds up the church. You can pray for one another. That's why we've given you the directories. That's not just so that you can see each other's glamour shots, although that's a side benefit, right? It's so that you can have that tucked into your Bible and that every day you pray a page or two. And you're in the habit of taking one another before God, praying for one another, knowing, you know, you have building strong relationships here and and knowing the burdens that each of you are walking through and taking those regularly before the throne of grace. You could pray for the church as a whole, pray for each other. You could pray for your leadership, uh, the leadership of the church. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite stories, Spurgeon uh, went to America. This would have been more appropriate if the mic kept not working. Um, He went to America and he met with a bunch of American ministers uh, and they were very eager to ask him questions. And finally, a minister came to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, uh, we've been very eager to ask you, uh, what is the secret to your success? How is it that you preach and just so many get saved and you write these sermons and they sell like crazy, all those sorts of things? And Spurgeon paused and gave one answer. And he said, my people pray for me. My people pray for me. And so do you view Parkway as existing on the backs of your prayers or professionalism, I guess, being good enough. See, again, those are radically different. So pray for the church, build up the church through prayer. The next one, encouragement, encouragement. First Thessalonians 5, therefore encourage one another and notice where encouraging goes right, uh, the, the, the theme that Paul's talking about, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. So encouragement, we often give a very low view. It's like the things that grandmas are good at. The rest of us have gifts like teaching and stuff like that. And we'll let the sweet ladies encourage. It's typically, I mean, again, cynical, but let's be honest. Uh, So the Bible never puts it in that low of a view. The Bible would say encouragement isn't just flattery speech. Isn't just, I saw somebody was a little sad, so I'll go tell them that they're awesome. The Bible is, or the the encouragement is lifting discouraged eyes and setting them on the realities of the gospel. Encouragement is lifting downcast eyes and setting them on a savior, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who is interceding for you right now at the right hand of God. On the gospel realities that there is No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not just nice sayings. Encouragement breathes, quite literally, the life of the gospel into someone's circumstances. And it's one of those things that you don't see its importance until it's gone. If you've experienced a profound, long period of nobody encouraging you, and then somebody finally encouraged you, you will weep. You will feel that parched soul finally get a fresh drink of the gospel, and it will mean more to you than almost anything. And so if that's the reality, that is the reality of encouragement, and if that is the reality, what if that we weren't waiting for those long periods, we weren't waiting until people were in the desert to actually try and lift their eyes, but that was just a normal habit in our lives, of it was, we were a church 
that it would be actually really difficult to enter and leave on a Sunday without being encouraged by several people. That we were a church that it would be difficult to enter and exit a community group or just a dinner with one another or some sort of informal gathering without feeling the fresh waters of gospel encouragement pouring over our souls by our brothers and sisters. What kind of church would we be if that was the reality? I actually have a quote if you skip down. Uh, by Josh Manley, who wrote a good article on encouragement. This is from that article. Consider what, wonderfully counter, what a wonderfully countercultural place our local church would be if we all strategically plan to use words for what will be celebrated on the last day, God's Christ-exalting, universe-transforming, destiny-shifting plans in Christ include deploying our words for eternal ends. So encouragement is a balm for a weary soul. It is a way to lift discouraged eyes. It's also fuel. There's so many times where I've tried to encourage someone, hey, you're really good at this. I've tried to affirm a gift in somebody, and A, they had no clue that they had that gift, and then B, they started walking in that gift really powerfully. And so for me, I'm just telling someone, you know, I might think, oh, they already know this. Probably a bunch of people tell them, hey, you're really good at this, by the way. I just want to encourage you. And then for them, that's quite literally a life-altering moment. And it's not just them that are benefiting, those around them, they're benefiting. If I tell somebody, hey, you're really good at explaining really complex things to where they're real simple. Now, all of a sudden, it's not just, oh, I feel good because Jared gave me a compliment. Their community group's going to benefit from that. Their family's going to benefit from that. Those just around them are going to benefit from that because they're going to consciously be like, oh, yeah, I, I can do this. I should do this more. This builds up and blesses the church. Uh, when God does encouraging things in your life, tell others about it. Tell us about it. Uh, we just added in our staff meetings a little tab for encouragement because encouragement is what's going to fuel us on. If all we ever do as a staff or as elders is just deal with the issues in the church, we could do that and we could really pray and, and try to uh, stay resting in the Lord and all those sorts of things. And we could be sustained that way. But if we also have ringing in our ears the incredible encouraging things that God, the God of the universe, is doing amongst our people... That's going to create fuel in our hearts to keep going because God is working. God is giving the growth. So tell others about it. Tell people in your circles about it. Tell your community group about it. Tell your staff, or tell your staff about it so that the gospel might be fueled on. Paul, over and over and over again in his letters, notice how he says, make my joy complete by doing this. Or he'll say, Timothy brought back this report that you guys are spreading the gospel. We don't even need to say anything. We are so encouraged. He's letting them know this news of God working in your midst has set us on fire to keep going hearing about Thessalonica as he's discouraged in Corinth. So don't ever think God invading your space and doing something incredible is arrogant to share. Quite the opposite. That's the serpent whispering in your ear. Don't share this. People think you're prideful. That keeps the church going. Okay, so encouraging is a massive one. Other side of that coin would be not gossiping, not slandering. Uh, Ephesians 4, notice how uh, Paul lays these out. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So notice, first of all, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth is not a don't cuss passage. What's Paul talking about? It's in the context of building up the church. You can use your words to build up the church, encouragement, or you can use your words to tear down the church, gossip, slander which we talked about a couple months ago uh, in a sermon, that almost never looks as explicit as we'd like it to. It's much more subtle. We give much more defenses for it. It's almost always you saying something like, oh, you know, I'm just venting, right? Which is a way of saying, I'm currently ignoring everything the Bible says about how I'm supposed to use my speech so that I can get this gossip off my chest, or I'm just being authentic, or I'm just telling it like it is, right? All these words that are just confessing our sinful speech that we just had, as if it wasn't sinful. So... Watch out for that. Be really careful. It is super easy to drift into that. Don't put gossip in the category of, you know, Jared's not a Christian, something that extreme. There might be something that extreme, but it often creeps in much, much, much easier. Uh, venting a frustration about someone else in the church or your leadership in the church is what will actively tear down this place. I mean, see, see the weight of it. See the weight of what Paul is telling you to avoid. He's not just saying, individually, don't cuss as much. He's saying, individually, build up the church rather than tearing down the church, which is what your gossip does. Okay? So we're not just talking about individual things. We're talking about 
the church as a whole. So rebuke is another thing, kind of goes with that. Uh, we're called, again, we have the honor, the, the difficult honor of purging the serpent's venom from one another, of warning people of running off a cliff. Don't go that way. Put down that poison that you think is giving you life and look to life. That's what rebuke is. Turn away from sin that is killing you, killing those around you, and actually tearing down the church and pursue life. Pursue the bread of life and the living water that's in the sun. That's another way you use your words. Okay? So just practical. Give people permission to do that to you. Those close to you say, hey, you see me straying? Tell me. I might not like it, but I'm telling you now in my sober state, do this. Rebuke me, slap the poison out of my hand, okay? And then you be bold and courageous to do that to others as well. That's one way the scriptures would tell you to use your words. And another big one is edify. Edify and exhort. Similar to encourage, they're often used together. Uh, but exhortation, edification is more kind of what you see uh, in a sermon. Notice uh, when we preach, we don't say, here's a truth, bye, done. We say, here's a truth, and here's why that should change your life. Here's why this wonderful truth should change your life as you walk out these doors. We're calling you to love this truth, to embody this truth, to live in light of this truth. Okay, so similarly to one another, that's not just the pastor's job, but that is the pastor's job. Colossians 3, you see there, will say, let the word of Christ dwell in you, church member, richly, as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, as you exhort one another towards truth, as you edify one another. And then lastly, I have here uh, the Sunday gathering. You might think that's the time that we get together to listen, or primarily just listening, but there's so many ways you use your speech in the Sunday gathering that builds up the church a lot. One would be singing. When you sing, sing loudly. You will never know who is very discouraged and sees you praising your wonderful Savior, and that just lifts their soul. Every week, every single week, there will be a time in the songs that we sing that I stop singing and I look and I listen. And I don't listen for a guitar and I don't listen for instruments. I listen for the most important instrument of the Parkway Church, which is your voices praising your God. And I can't remember a single time where it didn't make my soul soar as I hear hundreds of voices praising the living God. You probably never thought of that. Me singing is building up the church? Okay, yeah, it is. Your example, how you talk to your kids is ministering to other people who are just other dads. I mean, I watch dads here talk to their kids. I'm like, I need to do that. Okay, uh, Harvey, come here. Uh, you know, so you never know who's watching you and who you're edifying by your speech, by your example, your conversations, your small talk, all those sorts of things are ways you can use your speech. Okay, I got a boogie a little bit. Uh, okay, that's the first one, your words. That's the main one. I think that the scripture is major on. The next would be your gifts and resources. So uh, another picture other than a building that the scriptures give is the church as a body. Paul majors on this in 1 Corinthians. You know, we're all uniquely gifted for the building up of the body. Each plays their role. So some of us are a hand. Some of us are a kneecap, right, of the body. Some of the eyes, some of the mouth. We all have these gifts like faith or service or teaching or encouragement or administration or giving or leadership or mercy to list a few. And each one of them is again given not to make you the Marvel superhero of like, this is just who I am. It's given so that it might be poured back out to the people next to you so that the body is built up. So ask yourself and ask those around you, hey, where do you think I'm gifted? Again, that's not a prideful thing. It's not, it shouldn't be an awkward thing. It's something that the scriptures command. Affirm one another's giftings, Paul says in Romans. Why? So they can know and begin to actually walk in them. And then resources as well, whether it be your time, your finances. God has put you in the spaces that you're in, again, for the building up of the church. You were not born 1,000 years ago in Tibet because of God's grace. What do you have that you did not receive? And so God has given you time and resources, not just to make your life great, but to pour in for the building up of your church. So think through that critically as well. How can I use my time and my resources? Sacrificially, that's one of the things the scriptures will always encourage. Do this very sacrificially. It should hurt how much you give. I heard one pastor call it a big gulp amount. It makes you kind of, uh, right, that you give. It should hurt how much time you're giving to the church a little bit. It should make you, if, if you're just in the realm of like, okay, this is comfortable. My life is 
comfortable doing this much. It probably hasn't been pressed uh, enough. Again, the scriptures are going to really encourage you towards sacrificial use of gifts, times, talents, resources, all those different things. And then building with your life. Uh, we've got uh, lessons on each, of, or not on each of these, but on discipleship in particular, so I won't spend a whole lot of time there. But uh, main, main one I want to hit on with building with your life is hospitality. Now, we won't take 30 seconds, uh, but when you hear the word hospitality, you can just answer me in zero seconds. When you hear the word hospitality, what are some of the things you think of? People in your home? Meals? Both, right? Yeah? Loving others and taking care of others. That's great. Yeah, so we think primarily, hospitality, we think hosting people in our home, which is true, which is part of it. Uh, but the biblical idea of hospitality is actually far more expansive than we think. Uh, it's not just peop having people into your home. It's actually this idea of kind of rolling people into your whole life. Rolling people into your whole life, which of course includes meals and, and those sorts of things and having people into your home, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, so you notice the New Testament requires elders be hospitable, which if you don't know kind of the biblical idea of hospitality, it's just kind of random. Okay, and they need to have people over too. I guess that makes sense. But if you know it in the sense of they're constantly rolling people into their lives so that they can point people to Jesus in all these different facets, it makes more sense that it's a biblical qualification. So I have a, I have a quote there from another pastor who wrote a good article on hospitality. I won't read that for the sake of time. Uh, but it's this idea of you don't have to be an extrovert to be hospitable. In fact, it's a, it's a normal Christian duty. And so quite literally... I know of a pastor who, when he goes to the grocery store, he'll call someone so that they can talk for 20 minutes as they shop, which is the most extreme version I've heard. But that's, he's trying to walk out hospitality. I'm doing these things. Are there other Christians I can do these things with so that in our time, our lives overlapping, we might build one another up? I'm going to the park with my kids. Are there other people who have kids that could go to the park? Let me call them. I mean, seriously. Uh, I'm going to do this fun thing. I'm going to this movie. Are there other people that I could invite? Uh, I'm watching the Super Bowl. I did this last year. I, I like the Super Bowl, I guess. Uh, it's the only football game I watched that the year. Uh, but I invited other people over primarily so that they might get to know one another. And now if you're in this room and you saw the Super Bowl with me last year, you know the method to my madness, right? Uh, was, I was primarily thinking, who do I know that could come here? And this could not just be a sports event, but could be a literal building up of the church Event. So just thinking more critically and that more expansive idea of hospitality, how do I roll other people into my life? Something you hear me say often is every time I read a book, I try to rope somebody else into reading that book with me so that I might maximize what I'm learning. Hopefully the other person is learning as well. We get to talk about it. And now something much bigger than me just reading a good book has happened. Praying. Can I be praying with other people? Can I give up a lunch break once a week with somebody else who works close with me and we drive and pray and uh, fasting with others, things like that? are all ways that you can roll others into your life. So it's just getting creative about that. Discipleship, Lee will do a whole uh, lesson on discipleship, so I won't spend too much time there. Bearing one another's burdens. Here's the most important thing I want you guys to see. God wants you to be a burden to others. God wants your burdens to be the church's burdens. Now, there's laziness there. There's a group in Thessalonica, Paul writes in First and Second Thessalonians, who are not working just out of pure laziness and using the church's resources to support their lives. And Paul says, no, no, that's sin. Okay, so it's not just, oh, cool. I quit my job, right? Jared, pay for my life. That's not what I'm saying. But we always have this, I've got this thing going on and I don't want to burden others with it. We literally use that word. And God is saying, I want you to burden others with it. Okay, and... Burden is not a bad term, so it's okay to say, my kids are a burden in my life. This new baby is a burden in my life. And so when we set up a meal train so you don't need the burden of making dinners while you're really, really exhausted and sleep-deprived, that is quite literally, that's not just a nice, sweet thing sweet people in the church is doing. That is the church bearing one another's burdens. See that? So every time you click for a meal train, don't think, I'm being sweet right now. Think, I'm building up the church. And when you're receiving the blessing of the church, praise the Lord for that. The Lord's church is meeting your needs. If you're in the hospital and just a brother or sister in the church comes and visits you and cares for you, that is the church caring for you. That is the church bearing your burdens with you. So know where people are at. Get to know one another. 
And as you get to know one another, go deep in your relationship. Know where you can meet their burdens. Make that a regular habit. Bearing one another's burdens is meant to be a continual, lifelong habit of Christianity, not a one-time thing. Okay, so bearing others' burdens. And then lastly, I have outreach, outreach, which you may not think of when we're talking about building up the church, uh, but uh, it's very important uh, for the building up the church. So two things. One, uh, you are an ambassador of Christ, scriptures would say. And so how you behave out in the world very much reflects on the reputation of this church. And so the sinful world, people sometimes get this confused. The sinful world is going to hate us because we're Christians. That's how it goes. Jesus promises that. So I'm not meaning we want the world who hates Jesus to really like the Parkway Church. Uh, but we, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you are a jerk to a waiter who is a bad waiter, even if they deserve it, right? You have just displayed, one, you've forgotten the gospel in that instance. Uh, and two, as a representative, not of, of Christ, but then also of, of this church, you've displayed something that is very unchristlike to the world. Enduring suffering righteously, right? The world hating you, that displays Christ. So how you behave out there to your neighbors, you don't get to take your Christian hat off. You don't get to take your Parkway hat off. Okay, so your behavior, uh, honorable or dishonorable, reflects on the church. And so either builds up or tears down the church. It's a big thing we often forget. We think, I'll be a Christian here, but I'm allowed to kind of be a jerk if someone's, you know, being a jerk back to me, right? Because it's out there in the world. (laughs) Not at all what Jesus would say, right? So uh, how you behave out there matters. And then to evangelism, again, we'll have a whole lesson on this, but evangelism builds up the church, one, because... It adds ministers and members to the church, obviously, but then also it adds fuel to the church. In the same way of encouragement, it shows you God is at work in our midst. If I'm preaching the gospel and I hear hear of others who are hearing the gospel and giving their lives to the Lord, and I'm experiencing preaching the gospel and others are giving their lives to the Lord, that fuels me to want to keep doing it. That should fuel us to want to keep doing it as a church. And that builds us up in faith and in boldness and in praise to the Lord. So you see that. It's not just about... We're inwardly focused for building up the church and then outwardly focused with other stuff like evangelism. So evangelism does it as well. And then lastly, building with the goal in mind. So I just have here, uh, you never want to lose sight of the reality that the goal in mind is not Parkway to be awesome or your neighbors to reach a certain state, your brothers and sisters to reach a certain state of maturity. The goal is for Christ's glory and his name spreading. And so the meal train that you sign up for is ultimately about making much of the name of Jesus. The kindness you show to someone who's wronged you is ultimately about making much of the name of Jesus. The encouraging word you speak to someone who's downcast is ultimately about making much of the name of Jesus. We have to keep our eyes there. Otherwise, we'll just naturally drift down into just cold duty. But if our eyes are fixed on him and his glory, knowing what he's done for us, and then therefore it's flowing out of our hearts, all of a sudden every cold duty becomes a delight because we're doing it primarily for him. 